Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. We once again, as we close this Lord's Day together, have the opportunity, the privilege, and the responsibility to sit under the authority of God's Word. When we were last in Mark, uh, you remember chapter 13 deals with some very difficult things. And um, we saw in Christ's words there from the, the uh, Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse, where he spoke of the destruction upon Jerusalem and his coming at the end of the age. We saw his glory and, and we caught a glimpse of that in the text there. There was a certain seriousness to that text because it really, the, the thrust of especially those closing verses of chapter 13 had that emphasis on being prepared, being ready for what is coming, God's judgment upon sin. We saw um, building tension in the previous chapters, chapters 11 and 12, between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, and then because of those things, and now this turn of events in chapter 14, um, all of this leads to a rather ominous feel as we approach the Passion narrative. And really, what we see here in chapter 14 is the beginning of that. Passion, we are in Passion Week, but here things, uh, the pace of the activity actually picks up. Um, here we are entering full on into what we've called Act 3 of the Gospel of Mark. The, the arrest, the trial, the suffering, the crucifixion, burial resurrection, and then the ascension of our Lord Jesus. And here we see what Jesus came to do. We, we've said all along three things here about Mark, and I hope you hear them. I hope you take them with you. I hope they are on your mind. If God gives you opportunity to speak about Jesus in, in your everyday life, when you're at Starbucks, when you're in the workplace, wherever you are, I hope you think about these three things that the gospel of Mark tells us. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? Here we see what Jesus came to do. He said it in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here we're preparing to see how he gave his life as a ransom for our sins, for your sins and mine. And in some ways, this is, this is the worst part of the gospel. Because here we see Jesus suffering as no man has ever suffered before or since. But here also we see the best part, where we read how Christ willingly suffered for our sins, how he took the penalty for our sins, for your sins and mine, how he became a ransom, how he bore the wrath of God so that we can be made right with a just and a holy God. Here in this passage, in Mark 14, 1 through 11, we see, once again, Mark employing the sandwich technique. You've heard me talk about this before. Maybe you're tired of hearing me talk about it. But here he takes, kind of interrupts the narrative. And you see kind of the bookends here in the opening verses and the closing verses of those who are scheming against him. And Mark uses this tool to... Uh, better explain the events or the teaching or to show us a contrast. And that's really the case here. And the contrast between the Jewish leaders who are seeking an opportunity to crucify Jesus, to destroy him, to kill him. And then we see at the end how Judas comes in and plays into that. And right in the middle, 
we see this beautiful picture of a costly love of this woman who breaks this alabaster flasks, flask and pours it out and anoints Jesus. And Mark sets these things in contrast for our benefit. So as we approach this text, let us read and ask God's blessing upon the preaching of the word, and then we'll read our text. Lord, we need you. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you how it, how it shows us our own hearts and shows us how we should truly love you. Lord God, I pray that we would be not just inspired, Lord, not just, not just feel good about what is in this text, Lord, but that you would change us. Lord, that you would change our hearts to love you more. And Lord, I pray that that love would flow over into others, Lord, we ask. Lord, now may the words of my mouth and may the thoughts of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark 14, beginning with verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300, den 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. <clears throat> I want us to consider this text under three headings. First of all, the conspiracy to kill Jesus. Secondly, the collusion of Judas with the Jewish leaders as he plans to betray Jesus into their hands. And finally, the costly love of this woman who pours out this ointment upon Jesus. Conspiracy, collusion, and a costly love. And I've ordered these points in this way, not to sound like I'm setting up a spy novel or pulling something from the headlines of our politics, but rather to show the contrast that I think Mark wants us to see in this. To show the hatred and contempt of Christ's enemies, and then to end up on the exemplary love of this woman in our text. Here is love and betrayal. Here is darkness and light. Here is scheming and willful sin set against extravagant love and devotion. The conspiracy to kill Jesus. Mark tells us the timing of this. We, we've maybe lost track of time of, of where we are in the events of Passion Week. And Mark checks in with us here and says that it occurs two days before the Passover. Now recall, if you will, that Passover was one of three pilgrim feasts that brought throngs of people into Jerusalem. 
The other two were Tabernacles and Pentecost. So Passover, of course, was the high feast of, of the Jewish faith. It was linked to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You see there in the opening verses of our text how, how the two are linked together. Passover itself was actually only two days. It began in the afternoon of, of the month Nisan, the Jewish month Nisan, um, and that was when they killed the lamb, and then they ate the lamb that evening. And that was pretty much the extent of Passover. Yet it went right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which both, of course, commemorated, commemorated the exodus from Egypt. Remember, if you will, the 10th plague, which was the plague upon the firstborn, the, the, the taking of the life of the firstborn. But God told them through Moses that if they would take a lamb and sacrifice a lamb and take some of that blood and strike it across the, the, the lintel and the doorpost, that the angel of death would pass over the people of God. And that's exactly what happened. And that is what they celebrated in Passover. But also at that time, they ate that lamb that was sacrificed. They roasted it. They roasted it with bitter herbs that commemorated and, and helped them remember the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. And they also were told to prepare unleavened bread. They, were not, they didn't have time to let it rise. They had to be ready at a moment's notice to leave when that, when that time came. And so they... They, these were really two feasts, but they ran together. And sometimes in Scripture, you'll see Passover spoken of as, as a day and sometimes as a week. And that, that is why, because, because these are really two feasts together. So with that context, that is the time in which these events take place. And isn't it fitting that Christ would die at the time of the Passover but here we see the priests and the, the, and the scribes scheming with one another how they might take Jesus and kill him. We've seen this coming as we've, as we've gone along. We saw in chapter 11 when Jesus cleansed the temple, they were greatly angered. Then they, they began to try to find a way to get Jesus. Jesus told the parable of the tenants in chapter 12. And once again, they realized that he was speaking against them. And, and they once again, then at that time, wanted to find a way to destroy him. But they're cautious about the timing. They feared how this might play out over Passover. As we said, throngs of people came into Jerusalem at this time. Josephus has said that as many as three million people came. But as you recall, as we looked at chapter 13 and cited some of Josephus' uh, uh, claims, he is known to exaggerate. And, and some, I think, reliable commentaries put, put the number at more like 180,000. But even 180,000 in an ancient city like Jerusalem, a walled city, it would, it would uh, create some tension. In fact... We know that Pilate would come from his home in Caesarea down to, to Jerusalem at the time of these feasts because he wanted to keep an eye on things. He wanted to make sure that things didn't get out of control. There were, there were zealot uprisings that, that would happen sometimes when all these people were in Jerusalem for these feasts. As you might guess, the, the, the feelings of nationality and patriotism for the Jewish faith was very high during Passover. 
It was really the exodus that, that galvanized the people of Israel as a nation. And so when they are commemorating Passover, those nationalistic feelings would run, run high. And they would probably, especially at that time, hate their Roman overlords and want to rise up against them. So the chief priest and the scribes knew that that was not a good time to take Jesus. It was not a good time to, to try to take him by force. But then enter Judas and his collusion with these hypocritical and these evil leaders. Collusion simply means a secret agreement or cooperation, especially for an illegal or deceitful purpose. And I think that's what Judas is doing here. I chose that because it began with C and it seemed to fit. But, but it's really what Judas is doing. He is offering to give up the Lord Jesus to them. The way Mark tells it, that the offer for money comes after the offer to give up Jesus. But we know that from other gospel accounts that, that Judas did have a streak of greed in him. And he was out for the money. And Matthew 26, in fact, suggests that it is greed. It was the money that's behind his treacherous actions. We know, of course, that he was the instrument of Satan. It tells us that in Luke 22. And as we think about Judas, we, we, we think, how can a man who walked with Christ offer to betray up his Lord? We think of no reason that he could be so blind to give up Jesus. But remember that sin is blinding. And while Judas did walk closely with Christ, he does not have the mark of a true believer. He may have been geographically close to Christ but his heart was far from him. Judas persisted in his unbelief and the words spoken about him in Acts, quoting Psalm 69, are a curse. They say, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. These are strong words of imprecation or a curse that is uttered on and about Judas. Judas was just the man that these leaders were looking for. They wanted to bring their evil plan to destroy Jesus. They needed someone on the inside to give him up. And Judas was that man. But then in contrast to the conspiracy and the evil schemes of the scribes and chief priests and the collusion of Judas with these men, with these men we see this costly love, this extravagant love of this woman. The setting for this is in the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. Now, it's interesting that it uses that phrase, Simon the leper, because if he was currently a leper, I don't think he'd be hosting a house party. It would be like somebody saying, hey, I've got COVID, let's throw a party, except a lot worse, of course, because it's, it was a highly contagious disease, and, and really, I think it was a uh, a, a group of diseases that affected the skin, but it was very, very contagious. And you know from ancient accounts, maybe if you remember, remember the movie Ben-Hur of the, of the leper colony and, and how they were, they were cast outside the city and they were, they were, they were quarantined, but they were, the, off, they were the, the castaways of the city, of the society. But this man had been healed, maybe even by Jesus. And they, Simon was a common name in that time, and, and they 
remembered him by the fact that he had had leprosy. So here is Jesus in the home of Simon in Bethany. Um, some have said that this Simon may have been the father of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. We don't know that for sure. Uh, we, we can't find that in Scripture. However, um, I think it's important for us to, to think about other accounts in, in other Gospels. This account of, of this woman, or of a woman, I should say, um, anointing Jesus is found in all four Gospels. And there's close, very close similarities between Matthew and Mark, and also with John. The account that's in Luke is very likely a different account. Um, it's, it's in the home of Simon the Pharisee, and, and there's different things about it and different timing and different location. But John tells us, and, and most Reformed and Evangelical scholars think that, that the account in John and the account in Matthew and Mark are, are all one and the same here in, in Passion Week. Um, but John tells us that this is Mary, the woman who, who breaks this flask and, um, and anoints Jesus. But here they are um, in the home of Simon. Um, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary are there. The disciples are there. It was a large dinner party, probably. And it occurred while they were reclining at table. Um, as you probably know, they, they didn't sit upright like we do or like our mothers tell us we need to when we eat. But um, they, would, they would sit on the floor or low couches and they would kind of stretch out to, to enjoy this, to enjoy a meal. But here we see the action of the woman. She comes in, Mary comes in, and she's coming in with an alabaster flask of pure nard. Verse 3 tells us it's a very costly thing. It would have had, even the flask itself would have had considerable worth. Alabaster is a, is a soft calcite stone. It was used for the finest perfumes and ointments. Mark tells us here that this is an ointment of pure nard which is an odd word for us. We're not familiar with it, but it, it has in it spices from India. And as you might guess, FedEx didn't fly to and from India like it does today. So therefore, to get whatever this herb was to make this ointment, it was an expensive process. It had to go over many miles and, and exchange hands many times. It was a very expensive thing. This is not just regular perfume. This is, the, this is the good stuff. This is like fine-aged wine. It was of great value. We're told later in, in, in this passage that it was worth over 300 denarii, which is a denarii is, is the, the wages of a working man, uh, a day's wages. And so we, we think of this and we think it's, it was worth a year's worth of wages, basically. I was listening to one preacher who said it was, it was probably about worth about as much as a new Corvette. So I'm not sure it was quite that much, maybe a little less. But think of it in those terms. Think of it with that kind of, of value. We have to wonder where Mary could have gotten such an expensive thing. It's likely that it was a family heirloom. It's very possible that a thing with this much value could have been handed down as kind of a nest egg, as kind of a treasure within the family to save for a rainy day. So imagine the tension and awkwardness when she walked in the room carrying this. 
they were probably thinking, Mary, what are you doing? What's going on? Or maybe they didn't even see her until they heard it break. And then she took it and poured it out upon our Lord. Mark doesn't record her saying really anything. She simply breaks the flask, as that might have been the only way to release its contents. And then, of course, she's committed. She has to pour it out, and she pours it out over our Lord. John mentions also that she anointed his feet. Mark doesn't give us that detail, but that doesn't mean these aren't true. There was probably enough to, to cover his head and his feet and much of his clothes in between. Yes, the ointment that she poured out was expensive. It was likely the most expensive thing that she owned. Like the widow in chapter 12, she gave everything. She gave her all to Christ out of love and devotion to him. What then was the response of others around her that day? The first response was from the people nearby, likely the disciples, likely led by Judas, the greedy one who said that it was such a waste. They were indignant, Scripture tells us. This, this oil could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Imagine how many meals you could buy for homeless people with thirty-five dollars or $40,000. A whole bunch for a long time. You could probably feed all the homeless in Houston for weeks, if not months or years. But let me ask you, what would have you thought if you would have been there? If you would have seen her break this flask worth tens of thousands of dollars, what would have you done? It's, it's, it's extravagant. It's, it's outrageous. It's it's like some kind of publicity stunt that a YouTuber does to get attention and an even larger following. It was over-the-top extravagance. You might say, but didn't Jesus tell the rich young ruler just a few chapters back that he needed to sell everything he had and give it to the poor? Well, yes, he did. He knew his heart. He knows everyone's hearts. He knew that that was the key to this rich young ruler's heart. And he knew that this anointing came from a heart of sincere and extravagant love and devotion. And Jesus had a response too, not just the people, but Jesus had a response. He defended this woman's actions. Leave her alone, he said. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. It was fitting. It was appropriate. It was right. It was beautiful. Jesus further explains in verse 7, you always have the poor. You can and should help them anytime. I'm paraphrasing here, but you will not always have me. What Jesus is saying is that this extravagance was fitting because of who he is. If Jesus were just a mere man, yes, this was over the top. It was too much. It was a waste. But he's not simply a man. He is the Lord himself. He is God incarnate. It was fitting because Jesus is God. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus here is accepting worship that is only suitable for God alone. And Jesus is sending a clear message to the people there today that what that woman was doing was right because Jesus is God. 
It's not a wasteful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus went on in verses 8 and 9 saying, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before burial. And truly I say to you that whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. There's something strangely prophetic here in her actions, in what she does. Perhaps she understood better than the disciples did. Jesus had told them several times what was happening. He gave them glimpses of it. He told them in little bits. And, and so often they didn't understand it. And maybe Mary somehow understood it better than they. He had told them in chapter 8 and then in 9, I'm, I'm going to die. The Son of Man will be delivered up into the hands of evil rulers. I will suffer. I will die. He tells them several times. Maybe she knew what she was doing. But Jesus said, she's anointing me for burial. And ironically, this was the only burial, the, the only anointing for burial that Jesus received. Remember that his followers came on Resurrection Sunday. On Resurrection Day, they came early to anoint his body, but he had already risen. And you think about it, and you think about what transpired over the next few days. And no doubt, that smell was upon Jesus all the way through his death and resurrection. We've seen Jesus's, we've seen the people's response that they were indignant. We've seen Jesus's defense, his response of, to this. And as we close, I want to ask you, what is your response to this? Do you see this as just some expensive perfume being wasted? Are you indignant about the big deal being made about Jesus? Is he just a mere man to you? If he is, it's only because you haven't truly met him as your Lord and Savior. And if you don't know him like that tonight, I invite you to make your peace with God. Come to him, confess your sins, and trust in him wholly for salvation. He will be your Savior and your Lord. Or is your heart like the heart of this woman? Are you willing to give everything you have to the master? Where is your affection? Does your love for Christ lead you to costly service to him? Are you extravagant in that love? Jesus here in, in the gospel of Mark is, is ready to, all the, all the things are, set in, are, are ready to set in motion for his death. He's ready to accomplish what he's come to do for my sins and yours. Does your heart swell with love at that notion? See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, the songwriter says, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I pray that is your testimony tonight. Love Christ extravagantly. Let us pray.